Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Yes, it's midweek. It's Wednesday. It's a special surprise midweek limited edition picture disc episode of the podcast in which I'm going to be talking to Amy Lawrence about her brand new book, which is called 89. Just want to take a moment to thank everybody for all the feedback on the Arscast Extra on Monday. James and I had a, a conversation which I think um, people reacted to in very different ways. But I just want to say thank you to everyone for the feedback, which was provided without um, too much acrimony, shall I say. And, uh, you know, it's good to have diverse opinions, and it's good that we can all share those diverse opinions without it resorting to the real uh, depths of negativity that exist online, in online discourse, you might say. Um, and it's it's nice that when you're open and when you're honest about things that people can appreciate that, even if they don't agree with you, even if they disagree with you very fundamentally. I appreciate the fact that uh, people have taken the time to, to get in touch. And thank you, uh, as always, for listening. It really is very much appreciated. This episode, though, is not at all something that will uh, provide contentious moments, I don't think. Amy Lawrence has written a brand new book called 89. It is out tomorrow, and Amy's here to talk to us about it right now. Hi, Amy. Hi, Andrew. We are talking because tomorrow, Thursday, you have got a brand new book coming out uh, called 89. Uh, People, I guess, will figure out what exactly it's about. But just briefly, uh, sort of an outline of the book on the front cover, uh, Tony Adams has a quote, Arsenal's greatest moment told in our own words. Well, I mean, when that was sort of proposed as a as a as a thing straight away, you're you have that sense of question and doubt. Like, can, you know, can you be categorical about something like that? Can you say this is Arsenal's greatest moment? And I always think that there's a um, there's a, a got to be an element of doubt because life is about opinions, and there must be people all over the world that that have good reason to dispute you know, anything that claims to be the best at anything, really. Mm. Um, I always remember how Ivan Gazidis in every single AGM used to talk about uh, how the Emirates Stadium was the best stadium in the world. And I thought, well, according to what? Like, you know, who, 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 who said that? Like, who, you know, what's the, on, on how is this judged? And who, who's the independent commission who proclaims that it's the best in the world? Or are you just saying it? Anyway, I'm digressing. The point is, you can argue the toss about it, but in my lifetime, it feels unequivocally like the greatest moment. And I think that's because it was a moment. And if anything, this entire project um, emanates from the fact that 
I've always been quite fascinated by almost these JFK moment type of events in life where you have this this resonance and this kind of ripple effect where something can happen somewhere in the world and the reach of it is gargantuan and how there are individuals sometimes thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who feel affected by that moment yeah uh and from a football point of view and from an arsenal point of view um i think that people um who were kind of alive and conscious and interested at that time uh and even people who weren't that interested or had a passing interest it was something that shook them it was something that made people go wow beyond the normal wow factor Mm. um it was an extraordinary circumstance. It was an extraordinary drama. And it's very much a moment of its time as well. And one of the things that I loved about about putting this together was essentially getting in a time machine and going back to the late 1980s yeah. and realising how um, all the things that we take for granted nowadays in terms of our access and our communication to all, all sorts of things. It, you know, it was... <laughs> Very, very much simpler times. Yeah, um, was, and the uh, images that people evo- people remember uh, just take you back to a time where a moment felt so significant because you kind of had to be watching, or if you weren't watching, how the hell did you find out about it? Well, that, yeah, that's it. I mean, I was going to ask you, because obviously you've spoken to George Graham, you've spoken to most of the players. Um, there, there are fan testimonies in here, which we'll come to in a little while. But I'm really curious as to how it felt for you putting this together because you you know your experience of being an Arsenal fan at that age we're we're the same age you and I and you know it's a kind of formative time of your life and this seismic event happened which coincides with this other thing that that you love obviously as a, as an Arsenal fan we're all committed and and behind the club and how much of a trip down memory lane was it for you personally separating it away from what it meant for the players and the manager and, and all the other fans but it must have been a real a real kick to kind of go back and think about life at that time and how you how you ended up doing the things that you did yeah and i mean in many ways i think that's one of the things that because you were asking people to go back and remember something 30 years ago in in everybody that i spoke to and in also myself um it's yeah, that's quite a considerable moment, you know, moment of time. Um, it's a span thirty years, and especially as you mentioned, you know, you and I, we were seventeen, and I, you know, listeners will be all sorts of ages, but I did feel like that. I remember the feeling of being that kind of age, and sort of, in one way, feeling like I knew about everything, <laughs> and in another way, feeling like I was desperate to experience everything because it was all so tremendously exciting. Yeah, and um, you felt like you had, you know, that wor- that world is your oyster feeling felt really sharpened around then because you were old enough to be able to go and do stuff, and you were, you know, you were still young enough that you weren't cynical yet. Um, so there's this, almost a magic, I think, maybe of of, of being around that kind of age where you're you're not really a kid but you're not quite an adult yet properly it's a it's a kind of golden spot um so all all the emotions and all the things that happened felt almost extra deep perhaps than things that happened before or after and again one of the things i sort of can't get my head around even to this day is the sense that in all my years of being obsessed by football 
I feel like the two most profound moments I've ever experienced happened within six weeks of each other. And that was the Hillsborough disaster, which was the worst thing that I ever uh, felt in terms of a football-related thing. Mm. And Anfield, which was and still is the best. So for those two things to happen in such a, a closely crushed period of time feels quite weird and at a time when we were so impressionable you know yeah for sure um and in the backdrop of you know football these days is polished and packaged and some might say sanitized and obviously there are elements of um society and football that are far better now than they used to be you know facilities and and just the the lack of danger going to football matches but this this all happened at a time you know in the in the late 80s when when life was different and society was different and culture was different and that that to me always paints a, a really interesting backdrop to to this incredible Arsenal moment and it felt obviously after what happened at Hillsborough there was a sort of a reassessment of of the game and how uh, fans should be treated and then we sort of head into the 90s and things change in the 90s a little bit the the the, the fan culture the terrace culture changes as well and uh it sort of feels like the end of one particular era, but it, I, I don't know if I'm explaining that well. But to me, it feels like this weird thing where it's the start of Arsenal achieving success again after uh, 18 years without winning uh, the league title, but also the end of that kind of um, off-pitch era or things that were going on behind the scenes in football that weren't that pleasant. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, and when we first started working on the um, on the film of of '89, um, the the provisional title was the goal that changed everything. And I think that that's um, kind of interesting because we all felt that this was a moment that it was almost a we didn't you didn't recognise it so much at the time, but it felt like a a cut off point from you know old old style football experience and michael thomas i think was on 200 pound a week um <laughs> when he scored that goal just to give it some kind of perspective yeah i remember going to goodison park that season and this was again why it all feels a bit seminal and it was my first season really going away a lot so you know you had that that same that sense of kind of a rite of passage you're, you're a different kind of fan when you're traipsing up and down the country and and turning up in in other people's backyards and in those days you had to keep your wits about you because it was a bit different and you know the energy was 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 different and um i remember standing outside goodison park waiting for players to see if i could get an autograph you know feels quite <laughs> sort of uh, innocent and, and 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 now when i go to the emirates and you see the crowds of people outside who are waiting by where the ramp uh, of the underground car park comes up yeah. for for the players and i do recall a little while ago seeing uh somebody's car with blacked out windows kind of uh draw down by enough centimeters for a hand to come through to sign a couple of autographs and but it obviously it struck me as how impersonal that was and back in those days at goodison park i think also just gone top of the league uh very recently it was a january maybe um and it was hugely exciting and uh the players came out and, and you could chat to them. And if you stood around uh, 
at the clock end um, where the car park was at Highbury and they would come out in the old JVC centre and go in their cars or sometimes they would just come out on foot marble halls and in those days and, and they might have uh, parked their car up the road or something like that you could yeah, see yeah. the players wandering about quite quite commonly it just wasn't it didn't feel like they were as distant and living in the kind of bubble as is the case nowadays it all felt much closer connected mm. um Anyway, I'm kind of waffling and I can't but, remember. Well, I mean, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me ask you, let me ask you a question then, just sort of moving on from that. Do you think that that kind of sense of community is the wrong word, right? Um, but it was a, 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 maybe a smaller football world because it hadn't the game hadn't gone quite as global and it was you know more difficult for people to keep up with. Uh, with games and with what was going on. You had your football magazines and you had your newspapers and, and that was it. You know, the idea that you couldn't just, you know, pick up a device and watch a goal seconds after it scored might seem strange and weird to, to some of our younger listeners, but that was the reality of the situation. But I think what's clear when you go through the book and when you listen to, or rather when you read what the players are saying, that they feel between themselves a real sense of connection that has lasted down the years that perhaps players at clubs these days who who win things and achieve things maybe won't feel because of the the era in which in which they're doing it like there was a there's a story i think it's perry groves who talks about you know how on the bus they would sit there and tony adams and lee dixon would be talking about right well if i go here you go here or if i'm doing this you do that and they're analyzing and talking about the game and it might sound a bit like old man yells at cloud and he's talking about well how can players do that if they're all wearing headphones on the bus and they're not talking to each other you know do you think that kind of that thing um that has that has helped these relationships last down the years. A hundred percent, and and one of the lovely things about you know when when we made the the film that was is is connected to this book was that there were there was overlapping of the players getting together at various stages, and then, then a, a load of everybody came together, plus coaching staff and so on. But, uh, 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 when the film um, was premiered, and seeing their love for each other, and I used the word with a good reason you know it wasn't just friendship they really did look like a bunch of guys who loved seeing each other and felt transported to see one another as a group again um was very very special and i think that because if you if you if you there's two things first of all when george graham explains and the players indeed themselves explain the way that the team was forged which was a very deliberate on george's part combination of getting rid of the prima donnas he didn't fancy all the big stars sort of uh, you know swanning around that was not the kind of person he wanted to no. work with um bringing through this fantastic generation of young players and when you when you imagine getting adams merson rowcastle thomas through at the same time more or less even with you know the, the fringe players or slightly more fringe players like hayes and quinn and so on is pretty remarkable and then supplementing that very deliberately with players identified from the lower leagues or from less fashionable fashionable clubs that George Graham earmarked because he thought these are guys with talent and with potential but what's more they're really hungry they I want them to walk into the marble halls and think oh, Arsenal yeah oh my god you know and and he he wanted 
people he could listen to and actually explained it in a way I quite liked, which was that when he was a youth coach, when he first got into coaching, the kids listened to him Mm. because they were young and they bloody well had to. And I think his feeling was, I can mould people who will listen to me. I can make them do what I want them to do and they will do it. And we will develop this uh, resilience, this organisation that is going to be the backbone of a successful team. And when he came into Arsenal, he thought, well, I can't have a bunch of 16-year-olds. However, I can have the good young players and I can have players from outside that are hungry and that will listen to me and that are not going to mess me about and think that they're a bit special and swan around with their, you know, perms and earrings and and champagne Charlie and so on and so (laughs) forth. So I think that part of it was that they were all on this sort of adventure together um, as, as a group of players. Uh, and they, they they felt like they were part of something that was growing and they were there from the off, most of them together. Um, and the way that they worked and the way that they partied and the way that they were as a group, because they were obviously not the same level of distractions and there was not the same need to shut yourself away um, and, and, and try and not be driven mad by the public. The players, uh, I think the camaraderie aspect was was really natural because they, they trained hard, they played hard, they were a real gang of brothers in many ways. And although it, you wouldn't say everybody, it's, you can't be naive enough to think, oh, they were all amazingly close. Because obviously yeah. you have little groups that were a bit more bonded than others. But um, overall, I think there was a recognition that everybody was great. And Tony Adams, I think, says, you know, when he first claps eyes on, on sort of, Dixon and, and Winterburn and, and, and uh, Steve Bold and there was a the, the North South divide was a big thing then in English football and I think that's something that has got a bit clouded in recent years where obviously it's such an internationalised game and things are different but you know if you were a Northerner or you were a Southerner it was di- or a Cockney and it was different yeah and they were a bit mistrustful and it was like Adams thought not sure about these guys are they going to under- are they going to understand what it's all about what we're all about and then he recognised quite quickly it's like they're working class lads and, you know, Stevie Bold or whatever is not that different from us lot from, from Essex working class. We're all kind of, they had the same cultural references. They were all all pretty much um, uh, British and Irish. And when you look on the, the team sheet, which is on the back of the book, the only foreign player is Bruce Godbra, who's not from Britain and Ireland. Mm. In the entire Liverpool and Arsenal teams which is the top two teams in the country so they all everybody you know they might have taken the mick out of each other's accents or whatever but everyone would have watched the same television programs or listened to the same radio because there just wasn't that much choice compared to nowadays yeah so i think people felt just naturally a bit more all part of the same gang yeah it's a smaller world it was a smaller world back then um mm. uh, and and yeah like that's quite I, I that hadn't occurred to me i'm just looking at the team sheets on the back of the book here now um and when you when you consider what the the makeup of the premier league is now and and all the squads across the premier league it is a, a remarkable change i know 30 years is not a, a short space of time either but uh, yeah, it is. It really is something. Let's talk just a little bit about George um, and what he achieved in bringing that team to the title. Um, Liverpool at, at that point were 
by far and away the best team in England. They had been dominant for so many years. Um, they were maybe the equivalent of, I don't know if you could say the equivalent of Manchester City now, but in terms of how they're perceived and how good they were, you know, they, they really were an, a, an amazing team. And George Graham um, was appointed Arsenal manager having come from Millwall. So the, the track record um, from his point of view wasn't one of great success. And I think people were um, a little bit wary about his appointment at that time. But I was quite curious and quite interested to see him talk very early on in the book about, you know, reading lots of uh, books about coaching and looking to other sports um, to, to find angles with which to be effective as as a coach. And I guess people will think of Graham um, unfairly, I think, a bit uh, as somebody who was uh, in charge of a team that played dour football. That wasn't always the case. You know, it ended up being that way, but it wasn't always the case. So it was quite progressive, wasn't it? You know, A, the appointment um, of Graham in the first place, and B, the way that he he assembled that squad and put it together and managed it. Which just on the subject of boring Arsenal, and um, it's one of those memories of the night, actually, is that, is that I do, do remember, like, one of the first chants after the final whistle, there was this kind of almost manic chant of champions, 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 where you almost couldn't get the words out fast enough. It was like merging into that kind of, some kind of muddle. And then quite quickly after, it was boring, boring Arsenal in this sort of ironic way, which, again, it's part of the history that we've we've come a long way since then. So some people would either maybe not even know about that element of the history or or have forgotten about it slightly. But, you know, the reputation was still quite strong in those days. And um, uh, Arsenal were top scorers that year. In fact, so, so much so, well, they won, they won the title on goals scored. Mm. Goals, not even goal difference, goals scored. They're the same points and the same goal, um, goal difference as Liverpool come the final reckoning. And it was the fact that they actually had scored, I think it was three more goals in the end that made the difference over the season. So I think the boring Arsenal thing didn't really apply. It was a very exciting team. They were direct, but they were, you know, there was an energy about that team that was really exciting. And particularly away from home, uh, scoring four goals at West Ham, four goals at Nottingham Forest in a game that was on the telly. And games weren't on the telly very often then. That's yeah. the other thing that's kind of fascinating when you're, doing that rewinding of, of, of time and comparing it to now. Um, and I loved one of the stories that, that, that came out of talking to some of the people around the, the, the game, right? sort of, at, you know, that were involved, but were not actually part of it, such as the referee and um, people who were involved in TV and someone on the night production. The TV guy said that um, people had to know how long there was to go because in those days there were not... Um, score lines or t- or clocks on football uh, sports screens on if anything was televised it was That's considered right. sort of something that would uh, it was a bit it was considered a bit uncouth you know it, it destroyed the kind of purity of seeing the images mm. and there was an argument between the TV pro- producer um, who was in the truck outside Anfield and the person back at HQ. They were first of all they were arguing about what to do about news at ten because the game started late and they knew that they had to. They couldn't not have news at 10 and it wasn't going to be delayed. Um, and what, would they go to the game first or not? And that depended on if Liverpool carried on and 1-1-0, it would probably be normal news. And if Arsenal managed to nick it, then that would be the first item. And then there was a whole discussion about, can we put the clock up? 
And some of us said, no, it would look shit. You can't do that. And they went, we've got to put the bloody clock up. And then the little yellow clock appears in the corner of the screen about 85 minutes. Um, it's the first time it was ever done. Yeah, that's mad, isn't it? One of, one of the <laughs> no. things I remember, actually, is, do you remember when a TV program used to be on and before an ad break, there used to be a little black and white bars in the top corner? <laughs> Yes. That, to let you know that there was an ad break coming. I'm not sure if it was only ever with live television or whatever, but but that was there uh, on the screen as well as the game drew to a close. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wouldn't have seen uh, that, obviously. You were <laughs> you were in a, a different location, but yeah, I mean that that's um, that's uh, you know something that that's obviously been been taken on. But just from the point of view of of Liverpool, um, mm-hmm. how. How good would you say that Liverpool team was at that particular moment in time? And, you know, the the, the sense that Arsenal had kind of blown the title by the, the results that led up to the, the trip to Anfield and they dropped points and, and it meant that this, this game became a shootout. I think most people would not have given them a chance. No, and, uh, you know, all the classic sort of men against boys and you haven't got a prayer Arsenal headlines of the day were not necessarily considered to be, you know, provocative or unfair, but by most people, fairly realistic state of the situation. And when you try and recall how great that Liverpool team were, I, it, it's hard to, to make comparisons because they sort of set the standard in terms of a dynasty um, and they've been the dominant team for 15 years, you know, most of the 70s, most of the 80s where they won nearly all the time. Mm. And they, you know, not only that, if you say, well, that's quite comparative to Manchester United uh, under Ferguson, it's probably the closest you get to it. But Liverpool were winning multiple European Cups in that time as well. Um, Not just the odd one, but like many. And not only that, they played possibly the best football in Europe. So they had that kind of touch of, um, you know, when people think about the great Barcelona and 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 almost rewriting how you imagine football to be played, I think the the, the Liverpool team of the uh, of the season before of eighty seven eighty eight where they won the double, um, and they had you know already had a successful team and they had John Barnes and 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 Beardsley and they were a, a sublime football club uh, football team to watch. They passed the ball better than anyone else had ever passed the ball, it seemed like, in football. And mm. um, and they had great flair on, on top of that. So they were they were absolutely the benchmark, not just for English football, for, but probably for world football at that time. Um, and they were not in the business of uh, sort of blowing things, really, very often. And uh, the fact that Arsenal were inexperienced and young, I think the, the only person who had won a league in the whole squad was Kevin Richardson, Um so it wasn't like they had the experience. And I think that the fact that, that Arsenal had been in front for a long, long time, Liverpool had a, obviously had a bit of a dip by their standards and were a bit off the pace. But since January, they were just winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. And even more remarkably to continue that in the aftermath of, of Hillsborough, which was just a, a, something you, you almost can't imagine how they dealt with that, really. Mm. Um to carry on playing football and, and win, trying to win matches on the back of going to funerals and the, you know, the sense of really trauma. overwhelming shock, overwhelming shock and trauma that probably wasn't dealt with. Cause again, you compare the eighties to now and people didn't talk about stuff. 
in the way that they would now. People didn't recognize mm. mental health uh, or trauma in the way that they would now. So I can't imagine the, the kind of internal suffering that people were going through and they couldn't even talk about it or probably process it in any way. And, and how, how I don't know if there was much help around, but yeah. that wasn't that common in those days. You kind of had to get on with things on your own, really. Um, so there was all that going on, but they were still remarkably almost superhumanly consistent uh in the second half of, of the season and arsenal had a classic case of the yips in the last week of the season and dropped five points in two home games against teams they would have ordinarily probably won both matches so hence the the finale was set up in in the way that it was but it did certainly feel like everything pointed towards um Liverpool yeah. and I think what was also interesting is the psychological element where even you know it was, it was quite interesting to hear some of the players talk about this themselves where where people like Dixon and Winterburn were quite articulate in trying to explain how it was it okay to try and win the league against Liverpool given what they'd been through it was quite, it was complicated mm. because you're a professional footballer or you're a fan or and you're very involved um, and you care and you've spent you know, all season or if you look a bit of a wider perspective, all your life building up to a moment where you've got a chance to, to win the league and it's a dream. And then suddenly you think, well, should we? Mm. I don't even know if it's right anymore. Like maybe that maybe Liverpool should just win it. So these kind of things were going around inside people's heads as well. And it was difficult to work out what was okay. And, yeah, I mean, I think as well, I mean, you talk about the psychological aspect of it, the fact that, that Arsenal had been considered, you know, they'd blown it and they dropped those points in those games. Um, you know, that could have made a lesser team kind of crumble in a way. And I, I guess it's a testament to the character of the players and the manager and his preparation and the way that he set up the team for, you know, for example, he didn't go up to Liverpool until the day of the game. He didn't want the players stewing over being in, in enemy territory, if you like. Um, and that was a change. And also, you know, a change of formation as well. Um, there were all those things that they had to contend with, which I think, you know, in the cold light of day, here we are all these years later, when you when you add them all to that melting pot, the the, the quality of Liverpool, the the issues that were going on behind the scenes, um, the the psychological trauma that I think everybody felt, not just Liverpool players and Liverpool fans, but football fans with Hillsborough, the 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 feeling that maybe Arsenal had blown it, that they they'd given away a great chance, and then you have to go and play. You know, it really does just add to this sense of of drama. Was it Paul Merson who said? Um, Something along the lines of, like, if I was on my holidays and I was reading this in a book, I'd throw throw the book down and say, this is the biggest load of shit I've ever read because it was so incredulous. Yeah, yeah. I think he said he'd throw it in the pool, which I think is even better. <laughs> the idea of this of some book, or, you know, getting absolutely mashed uh, in the water. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was. It was, it, was, it was an impossible scenario, which is why it has the impact and went on to have the impact that it had for people. Because, you know, we all have an understanding of the kind of order of things in life, generally, how things are sort of supposed to go. And when something happens that's that smashes through that, it feels quite powerful. So um, but going back to your what you were saying before, I think that George Graham is the one above all who deserves huge recognition for 
the almost flawless way in which he managed the you know the days leading up to the game as well as the game itself and it probably would have been really easy to get that wrong mm. and he you know he was a smart thinker he was he loved his tactics which everybody knew and he loved his psychology um which was probably less known at the time but it was a clear part of his way of working and the things that were most critical to him were first of all to to do everything possible to take the pressure off the players so hence training on all the, the time that they spent together was very very light there was a real happy mood around the um once they got over the kind of catastrophe of the home games they'd blown against Derby and Wimbledon, I think they picked themselves up quite quickly and it was a happy place at London Colony. And, yeah. uh, and going up on the day of the game, again, that, that harkens back to George Graham being a student of of things to do with sport to give you that, those percentage points of advantage. And um, I love the story that he was influenced by uh, Desmond Morris, the... Um, the, the the studier of, 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 of animals and human behaviour who had written a book called The Naked Ape, which was all about primates. Mm. And uh, George had been influenced by this and how when you're going into someone else's territory in the animal kingdom, that, they're, you know, they'll fight and want to kick you out and do anything they can to protect their territory. And if you if you want to get away with it and not get... <laughs> not get killed yourself you need to kind of get in and get out like a raid yeah and uh you know he used to use the old john wayne lines quite a lot according to the players who kind of almost thought oh this one again but um you know that the, this idea of the cowboy kind of strolling into town <laughs> you know don't don't outstay your welcome do your damage and get out sure and That's- that was his that was his plan and uh and it did mean that there was a massive kind of air of relaxation. I enjoyed talking to the travel club manager who, you know, was thought it was a joke when he was told that Arsenal were planning to go. George, you know, change of plan. We're going to take the coach up on Friday. Hang on, the game's on Friday night. Yeah, Uh, yeah, George wants to go up Friday morning. But what do you mean you can't go up Friday morning? What if there's traffic? What, which obviously was very much a big part of things in the end. And obviously the team had just about beaten that, thankfully. But, you know, he had this plan of of doing it in 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 this specific way, and yeah. then quite apart from that is all the the tactical approach, which was really a genius shout from him, yeah. where everybody was saying, "Well, if you need two goals at Anfield, you've got to play twenty attackers." You know, yeah, go yeah. go for it, go for it. And he said it, and he made a wonderfully arch expression with, with his face, and it was like as if to say, "You must be joking." Um, <laughs> you know, and and it's very pertinent when you look at even the Arsenal of today, and you think about, you know, how there's this elusive search for balance in the team, you know, how can you be kind of solid enough at the back and that can be your platform to really go and express yourself and do the damage when when you've got your, your you know, your moments to hurt your position. Mm. And George was like, we don't concede. You know, we got to score twice, yes. But if we concede a goal, we, we're not going to start scoring threes and fours. So let's keep this manageable. Yeah. And, I, uh, and it worked brilliantly. I thought it was quite interesting to to hear him talk about his own reaction to it in, in hindsight, where he sort of wishes a little bit that he might have been more emotional or might have been um, able to, I, I guess, on a very basic level, enjoy it a bit more. Um, but but I wonder, could he have masterminded that kind of performance and that kind of um, 
tactical approach if he was a bit more emotional anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a really good point. And I think you're probably right. And and I think part of how the mechanics of of the team and its relationship with George worked was that there was this fear and there was this sense of, of you know, if George tell you, tells you to do something, I really want to do it. I really want to not get bollocked by him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Dixon told a nice story about when he would go into the changing room, just not of an average game, not specifically relating to this one. And George would have his piece of paper because he would sit in the first half in the director's box. So he had an aerial view of everything and then go down and lay into everyone as necessary and <laughs> sit down in, in the dugout in the second half. And uh, he, he would try and take a peek over the, uh, the uh, uh, as he was coming in to see if his name was at the top of the piece of paper. And he said, invariably, it was. And he tried to like go to the loo, you know, and it'd be like, Dixon, where are you going? You know, that, that you're not going to escape. You're uh, you're going to get pelters if you if you're not doing what is expected of you. And I do. I think that somehow they, he generated not just the respect and a kind of desire to please Mr. Graham and what have you, but also. Uh, a, a sense that they really they trusted him they they believed that he was right invariably and even if he came up with something where people would go what are you talking about playing an extra defender when we've got to score two goals at Anfield he managed to have a, fe- a kind of uh, status in the minds of the, the players and the group that if George says that he must know what he's doing so we'll do that Yeah. rather than you can imagine in a modern dressing room you know players whispering at each you know each other oh my god he's full of crap or this that or the other you know <laughs> what we're going to do oh no don't do that but i don't think that that was what what it was like it was a different time yeah it sure was just finally um there are throughout the book not just the recollections of players and and george graham and the staff and and everything else but but fans and reading them i think what struck me was just how vivid people's recollections are and their memories of where they were whether they were at Anfield whether they were watching it with friends in a pub somewhere whether they were in someone's house whether they were in um wherever they were in the world if they had to rely on the BBC World Service for example and they had to wait for a news bulletin to find out you know how how the game had gone and whether Arsenal had won the sheer um, level of recollection is is really something, um, and I guess in some ways you could say, well, look, you you have this thing with memory, don't you? That you you kind of create your own memories in a way, uh, or you you augment them over the years. But but it certainly strikes me that that in this case, it is one of those JFK moments where everyone remembers where they were because of of just how big an event it was and what it meant for for Arsenal and and the football club, um, and those are those are fantastic to read as well. Thanks. And that was something that I felt really um, inspired by and really uh, optimistic that uh, when I when I sat down to try and stop putting this thing together, I was very conscious of there's no point just basically doing the film in book form because the film's been out for a while and didn't really seem to be uh, worth doing it that way. And I was very conscious that I wanted to make it have, you know, some strong differences. And I think those differences come across in uh, the fan testimony is a massive part of that, but also in in the layers of of being able to to go off on tangents that were were difficult to achieve in the film. So therefore, you know, hearing the players um, 
you know, Michael Thomas and, and, and Paul Davis, for example, and even their teammates remembering what it was like as a black player in the late 1980s was, yeah. and that was very much part of the, you know, of the times. Um, talking about hooliganism and that kind of era and people like Nick Hornby and Alan Davis, as well as, you know, less famous fans, you know, have very vivid memories about what it was like going to games and how you were treated and being shoved up against walls and fences and the police and how it was back then. Um, you know, the, the trying to put across some of the, the deeper things that were going on sort of socially in, in terms of where football was back then was, was, great to be able to go off and explore um but the fan stuff was something that just grew and grew and grew and hopefully i think when it's all all put together it does give you that jfk feeling um of of this scattering of people across the globe literally who remember with crystal clarity um what they were wearing a, a snippet of conversation what somebody said to them i mean if you ask me what what did somebody say in a conversation with you last week, word for word, no. or even yesterday? <laughs> I hate to tell you, that's a massive struggle. Yeah. But people have a, a capacity somehow because it was such an important memory to remember what they were wearing, what uh, you know exactly where they went, what they ate, what they drank, you know the little tiny details. What was on the video of the coach coming back from Anfield? I think there was a Blade Runner and a Crocodile Dundee and, you know, various <laughs> things like that that, again, just place you very much exactly at at your moment. Um, you know, and people are saying, yeah, I, don't, I remember one of the guys, somebody writing in and saying how he had to uh, go and do his, his run delivering sort of chipolatas and pork pies and this and that across, you know, his local area. His, his job was a sort of distributor of meat products and he could yeah. remember everything he delivered. I think, and, you know, until he got to go home and, and, and sit settle down for the game and he has a, a remarkable tale of a guy in in germany who'd just been posted uh out there as a new recruit to the british army and this was before the fall of the berlin wall and he was positioned in a bit of, of, of uh, a checkpoint uh, alpha i think which was people know of checkpoint charlie but this is um further along on the on the in the east so it was the access point to what was West Berlin. So it went right through a, tra- a, tract, a tract of land that was that was East Germany. Then it connected essentially the West Germany to, to the little enclave of, of West Berlin. And he said they couldn't pick up uh, any any radio or anything like that that went to the services. So he was kind of on his own and somebody knew somebody who was able to record something and he drove through the night to pick up a VHS and went back to the back. And you think... How oh is this God. possible when, <laughs> you know, you're, you, nowadays it's 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 uh, on the telly and simultaneously on Twitter and on the radio and you can hear, a, a, you know, news of a goal almost before the, the kind of screeches of a celebration are actually happening in the stadium. It's yeah. uh, it's also instant uh, and also global. And there was a lovely one from a guy who was out on holiday, I think, in Corfu with his mates couldn't find a pub, couldn't find a way to watch it, went and phoned his local pub at home to find out what was going on and was on sort of hanging on the edge of, end of the phone for half an hour. <laughs> when the when the goal goes in, goes running off up the road and c- quite quickly realised he's been chased by two Greek blokes because he hasn't paid for the phone call. Because <laughs> in those days, he didn't have a phone, so he had to go to a phone shop where yeah. there was little booths with telephones in them 
and go through to the operator, and then you had to pay someone with with cash at the end of the call. Real money. Abroad. Yeah, exactly. So just the sort of those little slices of life that are reminders of a ver- of a of a different time. Mm. I think were really were really brilliant, yeah. and uh, I really love the, the the kind of collective. Um, picture that you get from all of that mm-hmm. and it ma- makes me feel like all the good things that I'd like to go back to 1989 about. Sure, well look I, I think you've captured the football and the fan experience uh, beautifully in, in this book, it really is a great read and it's a, it's a, it's a real companion piece to, to the movie as well it's not something that is just the movie in book form, it really does give you more depth and uh, and greater insight into everything that went on behind the scenes and on the terraces and around North London. Um, so congratulations. Um, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. It's a, I just, just, go just got to throw it out there that as well as being out in book form tomorrow, it's also um, out on Audible is an audio book read by Alan Davis, which is a real treat because um, cool. uh, I couldn't really think of uh, many people that I would rather uh, do that task than him. And uh, I think he's done a phenomenal job. So if uh, if audio is your thing, then head in that direction. But if you, if like me, you still like the written word, then, <laughs> yeah. then the books the books pretty nice too. It's in all good bookshops um, from tomorrow and on Audible, and I'm sure it's in digital format and everything else. Um, but look, uh, Amy Lawrence, good luck with it. I, I don't have to wish you luck because I think Arsenal fans are going to absolutely love this, and uh, we'll chat to you soon. Um, yeah, thank you very, very much. And, uh, you know, I we probably shouldn't let today go just without reflecting on, the, you know, the importance of football in all of our lives. And, um, you know, uh, what's the time? Is it two minutes past seven? <laughs> Sorry. Had to be Cheap. done. Had to Cheap. be done. <laughs> Look, there are things about, you know, football that frustrate us and things that delight and enchant us. And what, what went on last night was quite Well, that's delightful. the thing. You, you never know. You never know what quite what football is going to throw at you. And that's why we all love it. That's it. Amy, thanks a million. Cheers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You can follow Amy on Twitter. She is at AmyLawrence71, at AmyLawrence71. And, of course, you can read her stuff in The Athletic. The book is available from tomorrow in all good bookshops. If you can, get it from your local independent bookshop. Keep them in business because we need more bookshops. If you have to order it online from a gigantic company that pays no tax, all well and good. But if you can... 
Get it from your local independent bookstore. They will love you for it. They'll order it in for you if they don't have it, and they will very, very much appreciate uh, your continued custom and support. Right. We better leave it there. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this special edition of the podcast. Back with a... Oh, what have we got on Friday? We've got an Arsecast Extra on Friday morning for you because uh, we're playing late on Thursday night. So James and I will be here on Friday morning with an Arsecast Extra, hopefully talking about a good Europa League win for the Arsenal. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Coming soon to the official Tottenham Bookstore, 180 Seconds of Glory. Relive those incredible three minutes when Young Min Son's goal puts Spurs ahead against Bayern Munich in the Champions League. The passion. passion. The glory. glory. The really tedious, annoying, slow singing. 180 Seconds of Glory. It's all we've got. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.